managing FAB, and navigating the waiver wire in the month of August, plus an in-depth discussion on the ethics of playing hard down the stretch, even if you are out of contention of winning. Baseball HQ Radio's Patrick Davitt joins us next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always, Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Trade deadline has passed us. Our Mets got Javier Baez, five strikeouts today, uh, but he ha- did have a crucial home run the other day to win the game. Are you excited about, uh, well, uh, just about the Mets, are you excited about uh, the, the trade deadline? What a What a crazy day that last day was on Friday. I think it was one of the most active trade deadlines I can remember. Um, I wish the Mets would have done more because they do need pitching. Um, and I don't think Javi Baez actually addresses that. But again, there's nothing that can replace the Jacob deGrom. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, We're still waiting for him to uh, get healthy. I guess throwing 100 miles an hour as your average is uh, takes a, a toll on the body, I guess. Um, but... We're optimistic here, and hopefully the Mets will uh, still be in it and uh, make the playoffs. Well, we've got a fantastic guest tonight. Uh, he's been on our show before. Um, he is the host of the Baseball HQ Radio Show. Please welcome Patrick David. How are you, Patrick? I'm doing fine. Thanks, Ariel. Thank you for inviting me. It's really exciting to have another chance to talk with you guys. Likewise. And uh, let's jump right into it in our strategy section tonight. Going to talk a little bit about FAB, a little bit about the waiver wire as uh, you're mining the rest of your season. Some trade deadlines and leagues have come and passed, so FAB is really the only thing you can do to improve your roster at this point. So just let's talk generally. How, Patrick, do you generally distribute your FAB dollars throughout the fantasy season? Well, it kind of, it depends on the format of the league. I play in a couple of leagues. Well, I play in three leagues. One has no fab at all. It's a draft and hold. Then I'm in an American League only in tout, in the Tout American League, and that has uh, crossover potential. There's a, a possibility at the start of the year that at the deadline you're going to see some National Leaguers come over, and, of course, that's what happened this year in a big way. And then in mixed leagues, there's no crossover potential, so let's start there. I just divide my 1,000 units into 40 units a week times 26 weeks. And then anything I don't spend, I don't deliberately go out and spend 40 units every week just to spend it. I kind of look and see and, and calibrate and spend what I think I need to get. And anything that I've got left over in week one, I just pile it into week two. And anything left over after that piles into week three and so on down towards the end. And I always find that I have, by the end, uh, I have unspent money, you know, 80 or 90 units. And I think that's about where you want to end up. I, I don't want to get caught empty-handed at the end in the uh, in September because I may have to make an emergency replacement. But at the same time, I don't see any point in, in hoarding money because there's nothing to hoard it for. In the American League only, I put about usually 50 to 60% I set aside for the trade deadline. And then I divide the rest before the trade deadline into into smaller units but we have zero bidding you can acquire players in that league with no bid you can bid zero and still get players so the money that you have in that in that pre-deadline pool actually stretches a little farther because a lot of times especially given the talent that's available in a in a shallow 
a free agent pool like that, there's not hardly ever anybody you want to spend money on anyway. So it's a dollar here, a zero bid there, and it actually stretches pretty nicely. And then you get to the deadline and you hope to have uh, the hammer or enough money that you can get in on one of the one of the really good guys. And this year I didn't because I was really, really in bad trouble in middle infield. So I spent really heavily about 300 units to get Taylor Walls of Tampa when he first came up because I just didn't want to get outbid and I needed that middle infielder terribly. It didn't work out for me that well. And I ended up having about the fifth or sixth most at the deadline. And all there was five players that you would have wanted, so it didn't actually help me that much. I think I've got the most or second most now, if anything happens, like a big call-up that we're not expecting. But uh, basically, I think I'm, I'm just going to be, you know, churning the free agent pool as best I can in that league. Yep. Uh, moving? I try to have about 45 to 50% of my fab when it comes to the trade deadline. I want to make sure that I have enough money to make those pickups because usually at the end, you want to get those two-star pitchers. Those two-star pitchers can be pretty pricey in September, and you want to make sure you get the ones that you have, that you really want. Also, I try to keep track of how much fab everyone else has in the league. I want to try to be, you know, I want to make sure that if I have that 500, let's say $500 left in whatever it is, I want to make sure that it's not too much comparative to the rest of the league. You want to make sure that you're not underspending at the same time, but you also have to see how much people are spending during the course of every week because that varies from week to week, and you should base it on that. But I really like having as much money as I can toward August and September because that's when I'm going to get the two-star pitchers, and I want to have that hammer. Yeah, and you know, uh, I put this question out very generally, but the truth is that it really matters what kind of league you're in and whether leagues allow the $1, the $0 bid, right? If, if you're in a league that only has $100 fab for the year with no zeros allowed, well, then you're going to have to hold a little bit more uh, before the end of the season. Um, if you're in a mono league, you need a budget for, just as Patrick said, for that trade deadline acquisition. Otherwise, you need to apportion you know, some units per week for the regular uh, grind and save a little bit to have the hammer at the end. We focus a lot on the show here on mix leagues that are rotisserie, I generally, I, I mean, there's no general, but I, I like to have about two-thirds of the of the uh, fab on the first half of the season, one-third to the last half, definitely have at least 10% going to your last month, but as Ruvain said, it really depends on what the other teams are doing. See where you are in terms of spend in, as the season goes on. If, you know, if you have $100 more than, than the next person, you can, you're probably not spending enough for the needs that you have already. If you've only got $50 left and most of the teams have 300 obviously you're in a pinch. So you want to make sure that you're somewhere in the middle of the pack. And me, uh, like Ruvain, I like being towards the top. Uh, if you're in a league that has playoffs, you want to spend a little bit less earlier on and really save that for the playoffs. Obviously, if you're in last place and you need to spend what you can just to get into the playoffs, but if you're doing well and you're looking like you're in position – you want to spend so that you're going to be able to pick up those guys, anybody you want in the playoffs. Um, but you know, in general, you 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 want to have some kind of budget that ha for weekly. You want to have some kind of joy fund budget for hey, I really want to get this hot guy. Let me take a chance on this, uh, and you have to have something at the end uh, to so that you can have the hammer. So those are the three things to really account for, and it's going to be different for everybody, different for every single league and format. But again, it's weekly, it's joy fund. And the hammer at the end is, is the way I see it. Um, 
so um, anything to add to that, Patrick? Uh, um, do, do you have anything specific that you hold on to for September uh, in particularly? And, and, and uh, you know, aside from that, how do you play it in terms of where you are in the standings? You know, are, are you playing fab differently if you're in if you're at the top, in the middle, or at the bottom? Not really. Uh, the point, as far as I'm concerned, is to keep improving and keep trying as long as you can, however you can. Uh, I might be a bit more aggressive if I had a mid-pack team halfway through the season or a little earlier because I'd want to try to make a move and stay in contact with the teams at the top. But I'll keep trying the whole way. I know uh, we're probably going to break out into that discussion. And there's a, uh, one thing you did mention that caught my ear and I thought was really important is you have to calibrate your bidding to the amount you have in your budget. A $1 bid, a minimum $1 bid in a $100 budget, that's the equivalent of bidding 10 in a 1,000, and you can't you know, break it down into the decimals as easily so that you can make these little tiny bids and still succeed. So you have to be very circumspect in how you bid because those dollars add up pretty quickly. And I, my guest on Baseball HQ Radio this week is Paul Sporer, who's I think in second or third place this week in the Raz Slam um, draft and hold league. It had two fab periods, and I asked him how he managed that, and he said he didn't spend a nickel in that first fab period. And I asked him why not, and he said, I don't know where everybody is because it was in June. And he, the next one was at the start of July, and he said, I wanted to have all my money at that second threshold because that's when I have a better idea of what players in the free agent pool are going to be the kinds of guys I want. And I don't know if I bought into that, but he did have the advantage of having a really good team at the start of the season, and he didn't have any weaknesses that he could immediately shore up. So I think you have to take a lot of things into account, as you guys said. It's a balancing act between what you need, what you want to spend, how much you want to save. There's a lot of buttons to push, levers to pull, and... If you want to be successful in this game, I think you need to learn how to push those buttons and pull those levers for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, as you said, there's no gener- there's no one-size-fits-all answer on, on how you do it. But hopefully right. with uh, – yeah, and hopefully with listening to this show uh, and, and as we present the concepts, uh, you, you're able to take the general concepts that we give you and fit it to your specific circumstances because it's going to vary even for, you know, uh, Ariel Cohen plays different leagues different ways. I mean, I'm in a, a, a head-to-head points in Tout Wars for the playoffs. I've got the most fab, and I want to keep it that way. I, I've got $200 more than the next person, but I know I'm rolling into the playoffs. I'm in first place. I've already clinched. I'm going to hold off the next couple of weeks and spend not more than $3 and then just hoard it up for the end and make sure I get that player. But if it, it, we're in, Ruben and I, we're in another league where we're really trailing. Um, anybody who looks like they have any upside, we're going to spend a lot of money on them to get them because we have no shot other than that. Um, so, Ruben, I'll give you this question first. Um, do you change your player acquisition strategy during the month of August in terms of the type of players that you're going to pick up and the holes that you're going to fill? Well, again, you mentioned about the standings, and I think the standings do play into it very much when it comes to deciding who you're going to pick up in August. First of all, if you're from like sixth place and down, I think you should be extremely aggressive and spend, you know, if you think you have a hole to fill or you think you can gain a couple of points in one in a couple of categories, those are the target players you should go after because if you don't spend the money now, what's the point in having the hammer if you're in seventh place and there's two weeks left in the season? Nothing's going to happen. You have to be more aggressive now. You have to go after those certain players that you could 
see, okay, listen, I need saves. If I if two saves gives me four points, but if I get five runs, it'll only give me one point. You go after the saves guy. You don't go after the guy who's more who who's more likely to get runs. So I think that's the way to look at it. But it comes down to the standings and it comes down to playing time. Playing time has changed across the board. So you have to really watch for that also. Yeah, that that's that's uh, always playing time is always something very key to look at as we get down the stretch. Uh, for you, Patrick, uh, um, August and September, uh, how does the types of players and what you're looking for in a player that you're getting off the waiver wire? How does that differ from the first four months of the season for you? Well, I'm going to build on what Ruvain said, and for me, it's a spectrum right from the start of the year to the end. At the start of the year, I'm looking for any player who's better than any player I already have. And I'll spend accordingly and I'll try to calibrate what bid I need to get a player like that at that time, knowing what I know about my competitors. We've been in the league uh, together for several years, so that's a help. It's not like a, you know NFEC where you're in a different league every year. You don't know the guys as well. But as the season moves along, I get more and more focused on where the categories are that I can gain and lose. And I... Uh, Ruvain made a, a, a mention of there's no point in spending money to get you know a guy who's going to gain you five runs if five runs doesn't gain you any points or only one point whereas if you could get five saves that would get you five points so you've got to focus your money and you've got to focus your attention on that category because that's where the opportunity lies and I would also add you need to be looking behind you to see if you're in a tight clump with three or four other teams that are breathing down your neck in one of the categories, home runs, RBIs, whatever, then you need to be constantly aware of their presence and be ready to react when you see an opportunity to make a move in that regard. And just as an example, in the Tout American League only, I was pretty aggressive going after Clark Terry, or I'm sorry, Curtis Terry, the uh, DH in Texas, who was having a tremendous year in AAA, and they finally called him up. He's done off to a slow start, but I'm within a couple of home runs and maybe 10 RBIs of picking up five or six points. And if Curtis Terry can get me any kind of production, and I, I, the guy he replaced was getting me no production, I think that's money well spent. And I probably, I, it turned out I spent probably $20 more than I needed to spend, given the second place bid which they present to you. But I didn't mind because I knew I wanted to get Curtis Terry because I thought here is a player who can help me in categories where I can really make some hay. Yep. And the term that we use on this show for categories that are tight are large gradient. When you have a large gradient in a category, and it doesn't really even matter whether you're on the top or bottom, right? If, if, if there's a category where if you, gain, if you have hit three more homers, you gain four points, that could do it. It could also be a category that if you didn't have three or more homers, you would lose four points. That's also a tight gradient. So it doesn't matter where you are. It's where the marginal numbers in between the the, the player teams in a certain category is all very tightly bunched, tightly gradient. That's the categories you need to, uh, to really hone in on and go for in the free agent market. Um, we're going to now take a break to do... Some trivia. Time for the Injury Gurus Trivia of the Week. Well, because we're talking about fab and pickups and everything like that, one thing we have to talk about is roster churning because we have to keep churning that roster, trying to pick up the right guy for the right time and the right price. Now, 
This year, I'm going to talk a little bit about the injuries. This year, so far, there have been 827 players placed on the IL. 126 of them were due to COVID. So that means about seven, as of this date, when we're, as of the taping, 701 players have been placed on the IL this year, which makes the season, for, for the season, on pace for 1,050 IL stints for this year. The trivia question for the week is, it was higher this is a higher rate than last year. Last, I mean, in, in 2019, there were 667 players for the entire year on the IL. Are we on a higher or lower pace than last year, than 2020? So what do you guys think? Are you guys, or is the MLB on a higher pace or a lower pace of IL placements for this year compared to 2020? But compared to 2020 or, or 2019? Yes, compared to 2020. 2020 was a two-month season, so I'm going to be extrapolating through for a six-month season. I see. Okay, and we're not counting COVID. We're actually counting real injuries? We're counting real injuries. I am going to say, and <laughs> because it seems obvious that we're on a higher pace this year, I'm going to say last year. I'm going to say um, we're on a higher pace for hitters and a lower pace for pitchers. We are on a lower pace than last year. If 2020 would have would have played out and everything would have gone the way it was, 2020 we were on pace, MLB was on pace to 1,272 IL stints. This year, like I said, we're on a pace for only 1,050. So people think, you know, injuries are up, but I think injuries were actually worse last year. And actually, if you notice, the injury bug has slowed down a bit now. But then this, then we bring up the question, and this I'm going I'm to pose this to you, Patrick. Do you churn your roster more often or less in the final two months, and do injuries play an impact in that? And how does it play an impact? I don't deliberately churn my roster at any greater or lesser speed at any time of the year. The choices I make about uh, player movement onto and off of my roster and trades in leagues that allow it are strictly based on the need at the time, and that's constantly variable. And I would say I've been playing this game since the early 1990s, and I can't ever remember saying I'm going to do more towards the end. I will say that I've been in leagues where I could make moves, especially trades, and I'm first, second, or third. Then there's a lot more attempts to make moves, but they don't always succeed. I would put it that way, that it's not a time thing, it's a context thing, and it just so happens that that context that urges you into more action tends to take place later in the season when you realize, hey, I've got a chance to win this thing or to make the money or, or something like that. So it depends on where my team is, how my team's doing, where I can gain, if I can upgrade weak links, as I said before. The worse I'm doing in the standings, by contrast, the likelier I am to make some moves as well, in a different direction, it's more natural because I have weak players on my. Ro I have more weak players on my roster, so there's a bit of pressure that way. I've got more bad players to replace, so I try to replace them. Then, if I'm if I have a good team, it's usually because I have good players and I don't need to replace them. But there's certain amount of aggressiveness that's highly contextual. Uh, for me, I think that. Um, for hitters, I'm churning less in the final two months. Uh, I'm churning more early on because, um, you know, we're talking about $1 players at the end, and I don't know, I'm churning until I get the guy who I think is going to hit. Or I'm churning and saying, all right, this guy's good schedule this week, this guy's good schedule this week, and if the guy is good, all right, let's keep him. So I'm doing some churn for roster, dis roster discovery. 
pitchers, I think I'm churning more um, later in the season because I'm playing matchups. I'm trying to get the wins. I'm trying to fill in the holes. Um, I, I find myself churning more in, in the pitchers. What, what about you, Ruvain? Do you find that to be true? I think it's based on how your roster is actually constructed because if you already have this speed guy on your bench that you're able to plug in all the time or, or whenever you need to try to get those stolen bases, then you don't need to churn your roster as much because usually people are chasing steals or stolen bases toward the end of the season. If you have that power guy and you have that steals guy on your bench, usually for hitters, you don't need to churn as much unless you can pick up, let's say, a, a Joe Adele, who's, a, who's actually only owned in 56% of CBS leagues right now, which is crazy. Joe Adele, who's batting 375, you want to try to spend the rest of your budget on him and hope he gets you the stolen bases, hope he gets you some power as well, that's great. But I think for hitters, you usually at this point, you know what you have, you know what holes you have, and you don't have to churn as much. So you just A lot of guys, especially from my teams that I have, I'm waiting for guys to come back from injury as a hitter. As the pitchers, whole different story. You want to try to get the next saves guy. You want to try to get those two-star pitchers. So I think the pitching end of the roster gets churned a lot more in the last two months than the hitting side. So here's a question for you, Patrick. And, you know, along with picking up players comes the question of dropping players. Obviously, it's all going to be an opportunity cost situation, you know, which guy is going to help you more. But how do you decide who you're going to cut? So, you know, take example, you know, maybe there's somebody underperforming or even Jacob DeGrom. Um, I mean, I saw some people, some really good NFBC players where there is no injury list, uh, there's no IL slots. And they're saying, well, goodbye, DeGrom, I'm cutting you. I, I mean, you know, he's a top player. He's a top pitcher. And, you know, do, they made the decision to cut uh, the best pitcher on the planet, even if he's only going to pitch uh, three, four more starts. How do you decide when to drop players in the last two months of the year? It's a really interesting question because the, the pressure is on you to make those decisions correctly because you have fewer weeks left to to make up for a bad call that you might have made so i think you have to be very circumspect in making decisions like that i've talked with other people about would you would you drop jacob de and of course it's very league rule dependent as you suggest i know in the nfbc you have seven reserve slots and i think I, I might be tempted to put him on my reserve because even if it's only three starts at the end they're probably going to be pretty good starts and, you know, the, the kind of starts that can really move you in the categories, even if it's only a handful of starts, especially compared to what you're going to get from a pitcher who you got out of the, out of the free agent pool. With some exceptions, there are, there are certainly guys who come out of nowhere and, and start to look really good. But for me, the key question, I think, is who is the replacement that I'm going to put into the slot? And can I convince myself or can I see a path forward for the replacement to be an improvement on the guy dropped. And I, I'm thinking of a situation like we saw in Oakland, where they the, the situation when they got Starling Marte, all of a sudden, this applies at the major league level as well, because Starling Marte arrives, all of a sudden, if you've got Stephen Piscotti, Seth Brown, Tony Kemp, any of these guys on your roster, I think you really have to start thinking long and hard about looking elsewhere, because... They're not going to play as much. They're just not going to play as much. You're going to lose a lot of playing time. And then you have to start looking in your free agent pool and saying, if I would have held on to Stephen Piscotti because the situation hadn't changed, what kind of player would I have been looking for? And now that threshold has dropped because he's going to be playing 20 or 25% less often. Now I can look further into the pool to see if there's somebody who I wouldn't have considered before, but now I'm going to because the situation at the major league level has also changed. So you're always looking for that 
uh, you mentioned opportunity cost earlier, but there's also an opportunity opportunity when you have these kind of situations where a guy like Seth Brown or Stephen Piscotty is not probably a fundamental player on your team and never has been. But up till now, there was really nothing you could do about it, depending on your league format and, and how uh, deep your free agent pool is to do a replacement. It now gets easier in a sort of paradoxical way to replace Stephen Piscotty because he's not Stephen Piscotty that he was the day before the deadline as far as our expectations. So, um, you know, let's talk about the specific circumstance of DeGrom because I think it's interesting. This is it an is. NFB, NFBC format, so seven bench players, no in, no injured list, right? Obviously, if, if you have an injured list, you put them on there. It's, it's no-brainer there. Um what what situation would you have to be in on your team that would that would suggest to you? Well, I I, I, I there's got to be somebody better than having Degrom, and, and I'll cut him. I mean, if, does it take all seven injury spot uh, in all seven bench spots to be injured? Is it somebody who's in last place that just can't wait for any production? Like what what situation would you have to be in in the NFBC to say that's it for Degrom? Well, if it were me, the only situation I can see is you're worried about the possibility that he might not come back at all, and your your opportunities in the categories are in wins and strikeouts, and you can't afford to have a spot dedicated to somebody who's not going to start every week or twice a week, and I think you might want to take advantage of the opportunity to churn through as many pitchers as Ariel, you said earlier, that you like to do towards the end of the season, trying to get those two-start guys, trying to get a... Uh, pitcher's got an easy start during a week and try to rack up those counting stats on the pitching side. Having said that, the question is, if I put DeGrom on my reserve list, who do I have to kick off my reserve list? And what is the what is the likelihood that they're going to be contributors in a greater way than he is, even if he only gets you know a handful of starts down to the end? And you may have injury concerns in your main roster, pitchers or hitters, and some of the guys that you have in reserve are kind of backfill for those possibilities. There's a lot of ways I can see where where uh, a legitimate fantasy manager could look at the situation and go, I can't afford to swallow this risk. You know, we think he's going to come back for three games, but nobody said anything about it for sure. It's a forearm, elbow type of situation. That's very worrisome. Uh, if the if the Mets should happen to fall out of the race, they have no reason to, to bring him back early and they want to get him ready for 2022. I think it's a it's a risk-benefit calculation. That's your line of business, Ariel, so maybe you can talk more about that and more intelligently than me. But I think that, you know, it's one of those kinds of things where, as we've said multiple times here tonight, it's contextual. And sometimes good players make tough decisions. Yeah, I mean, certainly shallower leagues, you know, if you're in a 10-team league versus a 15-team league, well, the replacement level is a lot better. And, um, you know, having no—and if you have a lot of injuries that, uh, you know, guys coming back and for whatever reason, um, it, you know, you, you, you need the expected production. Yeah, let's say you're in first place. You, you just want some expected production. You don't know what you're going to get with DeGrom. You might get two starts. You might not. Um, if you're in a shallow enough league, then, you know, get somebody off the waiver wire and contribute to the wins and strikeouts. Otherwise, you might get a zero or, or much lower, you know. Um, that that type of situation would be uh, tough for me to 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 to, to say dropping uh, Degrom though. I mean, it, it it's such an expected production. Even if he even if you think he'll get three starts at the end, it's such a 
such a high expected production at the end that you would say, just okay, take well, it. Well, then how about, how about this? What about Clayton Kershaw? He's in the same boat. Clayton Kershaw's been shut down. You don't know when he's coming back, and you don't know if he's going to come back. That's why that's the whole reason why the, the, the Dodgers went out and got Max Scherzer. What about Tony Gonsolin? He's been shut down. You don't know when he's coming back. He's a lower level. I think he's a, he's a guy you'd be more willing to cut, but people have been holding on to him for a while to, you know, to get production out of him. But let me give you a list of some other guys. What would you do with these guys? Denelson Lamette. Noah Syndergaard, if they're on your roster and you have them down as starters, they've been both told that they're going to be pro- most probably working out of the bullpen. You have them, but you don't have them for the same reason why you got them or drafted them for. So they're not going to be starters. They're going to be relie- relievers. Are they going to help your ERA and whip? Not as much. I mean, they, they, they'll help it, but they may not help it as much as a, as a top a middle reliever that's on the waiver wire right now. And what about Ranger Suarez? He was the closer in Philadelphia. Now he's a starter. Do you want him starting for you, or would you rather have him in, in, in your bullpen? Do you want to hold on to him for that reason? I guess you do, but you, you cannot start him anymore. You know, the, there's some some jobs have actually changed in the last couple of weeks, and we have no clue. Now, there are certain guys you can 100% drop. Anthony Rendon, hip surgery, he's done for the year. Tyler Glass now, you know he's done, he can be dropped. So some, there's some clear-cut cases, but with a lot of these pitchers, you don't know when they're going to come back, and you don't know what their job is when they're going to come back. Because what if they bring back DeGrom, and what if they want him in the bullpen? Because they don't want to you know, extend them. They want him to pitch only two to three innings. Is he still worth it? I think so, but you don't know. And then lastly, going back to Fernando Tatis, we always talk about him. He's injured. What's going to happen with him? We're going to find out in the next couple of days, hopefully, how his shoulders re- reacting to the rest. But if they say he may come back toward the end of the year, but they're going to rest him for a couple of weeks, I guess you hold on to him, right? Yeah, there's a lot of questions there. I mean, I'll let Patrick ask, ask some of them, but uh, Tatis, that's a wait and see. Uh, you know, you, you don't want to make any decisions until you have the information here. With uh, Syndergaard and Lamette, uh, obviously it's more of a drop, especially if you're counting on them for the wins uh, and the length. Uh, you can probably find better production. Um, who, who's the other guy in the middle that you mentioned? Ranger Suarez is now was a closer for the Phillies, and now he's a starter. They're putting him in a starting position. Yeah, as long I mean, I haven't really looked at him too much, but um, you know, just in terms of the theory, yeah, if he's going to get more innings now, he's probably more valuable, uh, unless you really need that saves role there. Um, you know, it, it's just uh, it, it comes down to all such different questions. Um, uh, but you know, it, it, hopefully that by listening to some some of the uh, answers we give, you know, you'll be able to get some general guidelines and make the decisions for your team. And before I turn over to Patrick, funny you should mention Tyler Glass. Now, I just picked him up a couple of weeks ago in Tout Wars. Um, Tout Wars head to head, we have. Uh, by a, a, a semi-weekly lineup, so you can set all your pitchers um, half a week uh, uh, for, for only a couple of days, uh, twice a week. And I had an empty slot where I knew I wasn't going to get any production out of a pitcher slot. So I said, you know what? Let me put in a uh, $1 bid for him just in case I have him for playoffs. Who the heck knows? I get Tyler Glass now for, for nothing. Uh, un- I have unlimited IL in Tout Wars. So for $1, what the heck? Um, you know, it's different in every league. Uh, any thoughts on all those questions, Patrick? Well, there's a couple of names that popped up that I actually did have to make those decisions on. I had Denelson Lamette. I actually dropped him once when he first got hurt. I picked him back up on Fab about a week or two before he looked like he was coming back. And then I've dropped him since because it just doesn't seem like it's working out. And uh, as Ruvain said, there's a decent chance that he comes back, if at all, he's going to be in the bullpen where he's pretty much no help to me whatsoever so I've 
I've moved on and grabbed somebody else. And the somebody else I grabbed was Ranger Suarez. Because I thought, well, at least I'll get some saves. And I got him a week beforehand. So I got him for a dollar, which was, I thought, a really good deal. Uh, because I, I just thought that was how the close uh, saver situation was going to work out. Little did I know that they'd, uh, they'd acquire a closer through the trade market. And I don't even think he's going to be a starting pitcher in the traditional sense. I think it's likely that he's some kind of opener which is the worst role you can have for a pitcher because, you know, he just gets out there, gets to face the lineup once and, and get hammered around by the t other team's best hitters and then somebody else comes in and gets the win. If they had said he's going to be the bulk guy after the opener, I might have been more interested. But as it was, as soon as I heard that news, the Rangers Suarez was on my see you later list. Yeah. Um, let's just talk about category movement. Um, Patrick, what do you find that are the categories that – can be uh, can be fixed, or you can gain or lose points. What are the most volatile categories as you go through the season? Which categories on the other side are more locked in that it's harder to make any movement late? You know, I don't think there's an, a hard and fast answer to this, but I would like to make a, a certain point, and that is I know a lot of fantasy players who think you can't move a lot in the ratio categories at this point in the season because the denominators are so large. And I can tell you from experience and I can tell you from having done the arithmetic that that's not true. And there's three reasons that it's true because if you do it right, you can gain by adding a positive value player. So if you, if you pick up in trade or off the free agent pool a better batting average player or a better ERA or whip player, then you're going to gain that way. You also gain by removing the negative value player whose spot he takes. And the teams you're chasing, unlike all the other categories, the teams you're chasing can move backwards towards you if they have bad weeks or, or bad months. So I think that we really need to be aware of the fact that we don't need to give up on those ratio categories. And I'll give you an example that I just ginned up with a thousand inning league. So let's say you have 700 innings now, 300 to come, and your ERA whip looks like 425, 120. You drop Jorge Lopez, he's a 5 ERA 155 whip guy. You lose, you go, you go down, you improve by 4 ERA points and about 2 whip points. You add back a Zach Wheeler or a Charlie Morton, you go down further. It's really easy to move 2, 4, 6 points in those, uh, uh, not points in the count in, this, in the uh, standing sense, but go from a 425 ERA to a 418 or a 414 ERA. And in a lot of leagues, that's enough to get you some points. So don't overlook the ratio categories because you think the only place you can gain is in home runs and stolen bases and those kinds of things. And as far as those counting categories, I think you just have to look at it and say to yourself, how much do I need to, to do to catch up with the guy in front of me keeping in mind that he's moving too. You know, if you look at the guy in front of you, and he's seven home runs in front, and you think, well, if I get a guy who's going to hit me seven extra home runs, I can get that point. No, you can't. Because meanwhile, the guy in front of you is also going forward. So you actually need to improve your lot by basically as much time as there is left in the season added on to as a percentage of or prorated to the amount of, of the lead that the guy has in front of you. And you have to do that arithmetic. You have to sit down and figure it out, use projected standings, use projected category standings, and look and see, do I really have a chance to uh, to, to make a move in this? And uh, I'll, I, I have more to say about this, but I'm interested in what Ruben has to say. 
Yeah, well, um, I think ratio categories are still extremely volatile. I have a team that has uh, Kevin Gaussman and Kyle Hendricks, and they both happen to have bad starts last week. I lost a total of almost six to eight points in my I had a lead, and, I, and I'm now in second place. It's a team with, I'm with Ariel with, and we were in first place by like 10 points, and now all of a sudden we're in second place down by two points. So, yes, those ratios can still move. They can move either way, and usually if you pick up the wrong two-star pitcher, they usually move in the wrong direction. That's why you have to be very careful. So you have to be very selective in who you pick up and, and who you stick into there to make sure that your ratios don't get blown completely if the ratio stats, statistic standings, are so close together because, again— Everything is contextual to the league and how you're doing. Basically, if you're bunched all together, you have in a certain category, you have much to gain and much to lose. As for the hit, as for other the counting categories, it's a little hard to gain. I think it's harder to gain in the hitting categories or the counting categories. Sorry, the counting categories because if you're so far behind, like let's say you are 15 stolen bases behind. Do you think picking up two stolen base guys in the next two weeks and you get, let's say, two, three stolen bases a week, you're not going to catch that person. If you're not going to get those you're not gonna get those points because that other team is still getting stolen bases. It's not like those teams just stand still while you're gaining those points. And that's what everyone has to keep in mind when they're actually trying to catch in certain categories. Yeah. Well, uh, about the ratios, um, very different than the counting categories. I mean, if, uh, uh, if you're 20 runs behind uh, a player... Uh, behind the team, if they have a bad week, they're not losing any runs, right? They're not coming back to you. Whereas in ERA, um, the the best possible chance you have to catch somebody is not you doing good. It's them bombing. If they throw a couple of 10 earned run starts in a week, boy, it's going to be really, really close. I mean, uh, Ruben, we're, we're in a league that we're playing in. We just gained about seven points in the ERA and, uh, and whip categories together just from everyone bombing, and we had a couple of good week, uh, a couple of good starts. So um, those are actually very fixable. Um, the low-quantity numbers are more fixable, so wins, saves, even stolen bases are, are fixable. Stolen bases, you have to remember that um, there are more stolen bases in September than in the summer, right? If you compare July to September, because of call-ups and everything and, and expanded rosters, at least in the old days, there was even bigger expanded roster. Um, you have a lot more stolen bases, so that is a more of a cashable category. RBIs and runs that have you know index indices in the couple of hundreds, um, they're much harder to catch. Um, but yeah, the ratio ones are actually one of the easier ones to catch. Uh, that's definitely true. And uh, you know, the question is, um, Patrick, uh, uh, you know, talking about league engagement today. This is our engagement episode. Um, you know. A, is it too late to win a league if you're in last place? Um, the answer, I think, is is in, in a Roto League, pretty much no. You're not going to be winning if you're in last place. If you're in the middle of the pack, you still have a shot. But if you are somewhere towards the bottom of the league, it, do you think there's an ethical or moral obligation for you to play as tough as you can, even if you're just technically not going to win? Well, to address the first part of the uh, question first, I think that if you're in last place, your chances are virtually meaningless. And the the issue is, it's not how many points you have, it's how many points, how many other teams there are between you and where you want to get to. And uh, the the intellectual exercise I recommend is just think about it as every in every category or even in the overall, give yourself a 50% chance of catching the guy in front of you and toss a coin. And if it comes up heads, you get to, you get to move up past that guy. But now you have to keep doing it, and you have to keep getting heads. 
And the laws of probability tell us you have a 50% chance of getting that first guy, you have a 25% chance of getting the second guy, and so on up the list. And by the time you get to having to make 14 of those jumps, your chances are 31 in a million, as, as the way I've calculated it. And that's assuming that there's 50% chance of doing that, and oftentimes there isn't a 50% chance. Your chance is actually lower. But however you calibrate the amount of chance you have to catch each guy in turn, you have to multiply them together to understand what kind of chance you have of making a big move. I would suggest that at this stage in the season, you probably have to be no lower than fifth, and you'd have to be a pretty competitive fifth in the overall points category. Otherwise, I wouldn't like my chances uh, of succeeding. What was the second part of the question? I well, the second part of the question is in terms of ethics. It, you know, you, you're out of it. You're in ninth place, and you have no way of winning. But do you have a moral, a moral or ethical obligation to try as hard as you can? You do. Uh, I'm absolutely unequivocal about that. It's just uh, I'm going to use the word sportsmanship. I know it's not gender neutral, but it's the word that I'm the most familiar with. I'm older than a lot of people listening to this call I'm sure but when you when you compete in good faith in a league where you're expecting all your competitors to also compete in good faith you're letting everybody down if you don't compete to your fullest ability from beginning to end regardless of how you're doing I mean, when you watch the Olympics you know you, as the Olympics are on right now and, and you see some of these competitions where there are clearly athletes in some of the running races or swimming races that have no chance they don't have a programs in their countries or, you know, they just sent the, the one person in the country who even knew how to swim or those kind of situations. And they have no chance, but they don't step off the track partway through. They don't climb out of the pool halfway through and say, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to finish. Sportsmanship, good ethical sportsmanship demands that you try as hard as you can right down to the very last day. And by the way, I've said this before on my show. And I've said it before, just talking to people. Figuring out and learning how to go from 10th place to 9th place is going to pay you dividends in one of these seasons that comes up where you're trying to figure out how to get from 2nd to 1st because you've done it. You've, you've worked the standings, you've worked the rosters, you've worked the categories, and you know how to move up. And moving up from 10th to 9th may not be as big of a deal as 2nd to 1st, but if you do get that work in now, it'll pay dividends in the future. Let me ask you this question, Patrick, um, and because uh, it's a complicated issue. You know, there are, are some people who, pay, who play in 20 leagues. I don't. I play in seven. But um, some people who play in 20 leagues, and, you know, in terms of a draw on their time, um, you know, they're trying to win money. Let's say they play in the NFBC and they're trying to win money, um, you know, it would be unwise if they have five hours to do fab to spend equal amount on every league. They're going to be smarter, I would think, and spend a lot more on the leagues where they have a shot to win the money uh, and much less on the ones they don't, even though it obviously affects the standings and the ratios for everybody else. But, of course, you know, in their mind, they're playing for money. And even if you're not playing for money, even if you're, you're in a – or you're, even if you're playing for a small amount of money, you're in a, a home league – Maybe you're in four home leagues. Maybe you, you decide, okay, uh, you know what? I want to concentrate on fantasy football. Uh, you know, I'm going to divide my time that way. It, it's over. Um, maybe you're playing with the same guys and you're playing football. Um, is, there, is there any thought to the fact that, you know, it is a draw on your time, and if you are in that many leagues, it's just, it's just human nature, and 
it's just unwise to spend ju- uh, as much time as you can. You you, you 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 should spend more time on the leagues that you that you have a shot in, and less on the others if you're going to be economical with your time. Uh, is is that an argument? Well, it, it, I guess it depends. And ethical and moral choices are individual in nature, as we know. But I can tell you, I've been in that situation. I play in quite a few more leagues than I play in now. And what I found out as my life changed, I married, I got children, you know, and the pressures on your time are exactly as you described them. But I did not stay in the same number of leagues and play some of them in a, in a half-hearted fashion and just pick and choose the ones I tried to, to that were in the running for money or for glory or for a trophy or whatever the case is. What I did was, I think the ethical and sportsmanlike thing is, I went in fewer leagues. So that I, I went in as many leagues as I thought I could legitimately handle the workloads of given everything else that's going on in my life. Because I think you're doing the game you're playing a disservice, your fellow competitors are being done a disservice, and the, the, the sport is being done a disservice if you just say, I'm going to enter 60 leagues in the hope that I can somehow manage my way to one victory. And then, especially if you then go around and say, look at me, I won one victory and never mention the, you know, the 25 right. or 40 leagues or whatever that you finished, you know, 11th or, or 9th or something like that. It's, it's, I, th- I find it a little dishonest and I certainly find it not very ethical insofar as the sportsmanship of it is concerned. If you can't manage 20 leagues, given the time constraints in your life, then play in 10 or play in 8 or whatever. Because as you said... There are other guys in those leagues who are trying to win money, and your inactivity is contributing to them possibly not doing that, despite the fact that they are trying really hard. But you're sitting there not, not doing your roster. You're sitting there losing ground in the categories. And maybe, I mean, I know I would be very angry if I was first and on the very last day of the season somebody snuck by me to, to win because some third party who didn't even participate for the last four weeks had somehow not handled his team enough to let that second place guy get a one last home run to sneak in front for an extra point. That's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. So it's it you have a I think you have an ethical obligation to if you're going to play in the league, play it to the end and if you can't manage it, then get into fewer leagues. So Ruben, let me ask you this. Um does it is it differ the the ethical and moral obligation in terms of how you play so uh, you know, part of playing is setting legal lineups. Is you don't have you don't play players that are injured, um, but you can you can spend a lot of time in the waiver wire and say, well, this guy's marginally better than this guy, so I'm going to put him in here. I'm looking at the categories, or you can at least set your lineup and make waiver wire pickups to handle injuries. Oh, this guy's injured. Okay, I'm going to go in the waiver wire and pick him up. If you're in 15th place, okay, I'll at least pick up guys who are not injured, but I'm not going to spend that much time. Do you think there's a difference in terms of just setting legal lineups um, and fair lineups versus really going all out in your mind? No, I, don't, I think it's I think it's the same thing because a lot of teams who stop going in and picking up players from FAB because the teams are out of it, they're not setting legal lineups and they're letting their lineups go illegal. And sometimes it gets to the point where people where teams don't reach. There's a threshold for innings or or, or at bats, and they don't reach it because of these injuries, and it screws over the entire league. That's happened to us in a couple of leagues, and I don't think that's fair. And so that's why there is an obligation for for someone just to continue. Listen, if you're at a baseball game and let's say you're watching, I don't know, let's say the Mets, and let's say they're losing. I don't know nine to one to the Phillies over the weekend, and you're in you're in the stadium, and you're there. Do you leave in the seventh inning, or do you hold out hope 
and think they're going to come back. Are you one of those guys who stays to the bitter end? If you're one of those guys who stays to the bitter end and you're one of those guys who keeps churning the, the fab, keeps changing your roster throughout the entire season, even if you're still out of it. Another point, though, is if you keep watching for the last two months and you're out of it and you keep churning and you're looking at the rosters and you're looking at the waiver wire and you're seeing what's going on, you can start to see trends from the end of this year to the beginning of next year. And you can actually see, oh, wait, the last two months of the season, I picked up this guy. I remember that. He took off for me the last two months of the season. Maybe I should be on him next year. And other play, other teams may not know about him because you were on him and you saw him develop. And I think it's, it's actually a positive thing for you to continue to keep setting an illegal roster to continue to go after the fab. Now, there are a lot of times also when the top teams in the league, when they go into the fab weekend, they'll say, you know what? I don't think this person's going to bid on this guy because he's out of it. That's not fair to that team. They should think that they're going to be have their some bid on someone also as well because that's not fair. You can say, you know what? I don't think he's going to bid on it, so I'm going to bid $1 and I'm going to get him for that. But if you keep everyone honest, and that's what you, if you keep playing fab and you keep setting lineups, you're keeping everybody honest, and I think that's the best way to go. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't consider myself extraordinarily moral or not, and I don't even know if I'm doing this correctly. What I do is, you know, I, I'm playing – you know, as much as I can, I do give more more uh, t- of my time to the t- to the teams that I have a chance, and a little bit less. Um, but I but I do play it. I mean, if I have three hundred dollars in Fab, I don't care if I'm in fifteenth place. I'm using all three hundred. If if it's the last week of the season and I'm out of it, I'm using all three hundred dollars. Um, that's not to say I'm going to spend that much time on that. I'm going to, if I'm playing in seven leagues, I know the players pretty well. So I know, all right, let's look for this guy, look for this guy. Oh, he's available in this league. Now, 200 on that guy for the last week. Um, so I won't go crazy in terms of my time, but I'm going to play it right. I never have a situation where I, I'm putting injured players in the lineup. Never have a situation where I don't make any fab at all. I'm always doing putting some of my time, but I am playing more uh, for the leagues that I think I have a chance. Um, I, I hate those teams that uh, if, if if you're they're out of it, they don't play anyone. And uh, you ever have the, uh, the innings minimums? You know, fifteen hundred innings minimum, and all of a sudden one team doesn't qualify, and because of that, somebody jumps up in the standings. I think that's terrible. I think you have an obligation to make sure you hit every single minimum. Uh, and there should be penalties. I mean, the truth of the matter is that, uh, you know, you not everybody is going to follow this moral ethical code. If you did put in incentives, if you have the payout structure up and down, even in ninth place, 10th place, you get $10 more, $15, $20 more. I think that that adds uh, a little bit more commitment to say, okay, you have to spend some amount of time because, you know, you might get an extra $10, $20, $30 out of it. Where you put no incentives, human nature is to just you know, totally collapse. So, you know, again, I, I always think you should spend some amount of time, always make sure that you are doing something fair, but I don't see any reason that you can't spend more time on on the places that will help you more. I mean, you're playing the game, so does everybody else, and it's your right as well. So I, well, I've, well I've, I actually have a question then. If you're a commissioner of a league and you see, you see a team is not meeting their – not setting a legal lineup, as a commissioner, you see they're not going to get to that innings minimum – should you, as the commissioner, set a legal lineup to make sure that that team gets to the innings limit? Well, I mean, if there's no rule that that's in there, uh, then I don't think you can. But I, I, and as a commissioner, I've nudged people. I, I've said I've sent out reminders with a month to go. Uh, excuse me, your lineup, it, it, you're not on pace to meeting the innings requirement. 
please pick up somebody and play them. That I've said. Well, what do you think, Patrick? I've been in that situation too, and you know that that's what we ended up having to do was just remind guys, hey, you know, you're you're going to come up short of the inning, so you need to add a couple of pitchers or at least replace the three guys on your roster who are hurt and that you haven't done anything with for a month. Those kind of things, and then. As, as soon as you can after, you have to convene some kind of league gathering and get rid of that player because you don't want to have a player like that unless you can get some kind of a guarantee that that kind of performance won't be repeated. But I can tell you right now, if they'll do it once, they'll do it a hundred times. I, I think that's inevitable. We had an idea in a league, I, a home league I played in once because we were running into this trouble. And you talked about incentives. And what we did was we changed the order of the minor league draft. We had a farm draft every year, which was really important because it was a keeper league. And so the, the draft used to be 12, 11, 10, 9 to 1 for that draft. And we thought, well, we're rewarding people for tanking and going down to 12 spot. So we changed the order from, from that to 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 through 12, then 4, 3, 2, 1. So there was an incentive insofar as improving your team in the subsequent year's farm draft by trying hard to move up in spots. And then we also had a, a, a system, we called it the, the, the loser lottery. And the, everybody at the start of the year had to throw 50 bucks into a pot. At the end of the year, the 11th and 12th place teams didn't get the 100 bucks. They, had to lo they lost their 50 bucks deposit. Everybody else got it refunded. And then the 5 through 12 teams had a lottery draw for the 100 bucks. And the higher you were in it, you, the more chances you had in the draw, the more ping pong balls you had in the draw. So there was a double-sided incentive. You, if you didn't, if you finished 12th or 11th, you lost 100 bucks, 50 bucks each, and you had the lowest chance of winning the the lottery pool, and the guy in fifth had the greatest chance. So there was a double incentive there, and I'm telling you, it really worked. Yeah. But I think it's pretty simple. I mean, instead of if you have a ten-team league and you have a hundred bucks in a league and you're going seven hundred, two hundred, one hundred for top three, I just just take some out of it. You know, make it five hundred for the top and two hundred for the next and a hundred for the next and uh, a ninety, eighty, seventy, fifty. You know, just you can scale it all the way down to the end and and make it you know twenty bucks for the next. Spot, 20 bucks for the next spot. There's always some way to put some incentive is the point. Uh, but even if there isn't, you know, I, I, you should be playing. Uh, it's it's uh, this is why we play the game. Uh, be be consider be considerate of your other of your other fellow uh, league mates. You know, it's it's about sportsmanship, as you mentioned, Patrick, and consideration. And considerate scouting for the next year. That's all. Yeah. All right. Time for waiver wire. It's where we're gonna uh, the segment where we. Mention a couple of players that you might want to pick up this week. Let's start with you, Patrick, who are a couple of players that you might want to pick up this week on FAB. Okay, I'll start with a pitcher. I thought there's going to be some opportunities with the COVID news about Garrett Cole and Jordan Montgomery on top of the previous injuries affecting uh, Domingo Herman, Corey Kluber, Luis Severino, Michael King. It's been a real disaster in the Bronx. And I think you might want to gamble on some potential replacements in that rotation. Uh, the bright, shiny object is Luis Gill, who had a terrific first start, but my pick is left-hander Nestor Cortez, who has more than 100 big league innings, not too impressive in the past, but 193 ERA, 095 whip this year, 39 strikeouts in 32 innings, a ton of ground balls and a really low barrel rate. I think Nestor Cortez could find his way into that rotation, and say what you will about the Yankees, they're going to score runs, and their bullpen's pretty good, so you might want to take a look at Nestor Cortez. On the hitting side, I know a lot of people 
are looking at Rafael Ortega of the Cubs, who's getting some opportunities with the departures of Schwarber and Rizzo. I think he had a three-home run game just a, a few nights ago. Joe Adele got called up this week, and he has a great pedigree, but a miserable track record. So my pick is Detroit catcher Eric Haas. He's the AL Rookie of the Month for July. He won't be available in a lot of leagues, I understand that. 946 OPS, 9 homers, 29 RBIs in July alone. And he gained a, a channel to increased playing time when Jake Rogers went on the IL. He has a forearm injury. Career slugging rate in almost 300 plate appearances in the uh, majors and minors, 474. I know the ship has sailed in a lot of leagues, but if he's available in your league, take a good long look at Eric Haas. Yep. And uh, Cortez is a uh, Nando DeFino uh, special. He he mentions him. He mentioned him the whole year. So uh, uh, definitely good pick. Ruvain, how about you? I'm going to go with a couple relievers and a first base outfield guy. First of all, the two relievers I want to mention, I can't believe he's only 20%, 27% owned in CBS, and that's Andrew Kittredge from Tampa. He's the possible main closer there right now since Diego Castillo was traded. Even if he doesn't close, he's gone 51 innings with 52 strikeouts, a 1.4 ERA, and a .9 whip. Now, you tell me that's not going to help you with the ratios, then you have to be crazy. He was an all-star. He's one of the people that you don't even think of him as being an all-star, but he was an all-star. He was just that good, and he's available in a ton of leagues. Another guy who I'm going to mention, and no, it's not 2012, but I'm going to mention Tyler Clippard. Tyler Clippard led the Nats in saves in 2012 with 32. Right now... He is the de facto closer in Arizona. He's got two saves so far in six outings, six innings, four hits, one walk, five strikeouts, only 12% owned in CBS. You want to take a stab at a closer? They almost traded him, but they didn't trade him. You know what? He's the closer there right now, and I think he's available in a ton of leagues. Another guy who I'm going to mention, who I mentioned before in this pod, and that's Darren Ruff. Now, Darren Ruff, last couple of weeks, last seven games, actually, he's batting 375, two homers, five RBIs, one stolen base, four runs, eligible at first and outfield. He's only 7% owned. Now, Brandon Belt was activated from the IL earlier today, which means he may not get as much playing time in the infield, but he's hitting so well that he have to find some time for him somewhere. He has 86 career home runs in Korea with the Samsung Lions. He only has 52 career home runs in, in the in Major League Baseball for his entire career, but he's a guy who has power. He can get you the occasional stolen base, and right now he's hitting for average, so he's a guy with only 7% on in CBS you can pick up. And Tyler Clipper, you also get a pair of his glasses if you pick him up as well. Um, yeah, the you know, wraparounds, yeah. <laughs> Dylan Floro of the Marlins, only owned in 16% on CBS. Uh, I know Bender got the save today, and I have Bender in a lot of leagues, but Floro, that's a pretty under-owned percentage there. He had two straight games of the closer. Um, I would pick him up. Spencer Patton, 5% owned on CBS. Uh, he might be the closer. He has 27 strikeouts and 20 innings, 315 ERA, 115 whip. That sounds like an instant pickup if you need saves. I'll mention two other hitters. How about Rowdy Telez? Still only 20% owned on CBS. He's hot. Since joining Milwaukee, listen to his triple slash. 340, 438, 660. I, I would pick him up. Um, he has uh, five homer in, a, in about a month's time. Five homers, sixteen RBIs. Uh, that that's a pickup for me. Yadiel Hernandez, six percent owned on CBS. He's in the last uh, two weeks. He's hitting five forty-five, two homers and seven RBIs. His triple slash on the year 
312, 372, 459. But here's why you should pick him up. Now he on Washington, he's batting fourth or fifth every day. I don't care if you're on the worst team in all of baseball. If you're batting cleanup on a lineup, that's going to get you a lot of RBIs. And if you have a over 300 batting average and you're batting in the middle of the lineup, that's a ton of RBIs. So because of the spot, Yadiel Hernandez is going to be great for the counting spots, under-owned at 6%. All right, pitcher preview. Uh, that's where we highlight a possible good key matchup. Uh, two-star pitcher next week, or maybe stash a pitcher, and he's a future two-star pitcher. Um, go ahead, uh, Patrick, uh, who is your pitcher pickup for this week? I just wanted to say I grabbed Spencer Patton a week ago as well, so that's a, a good call. He's uh, already got me a saver too, so I'm glad I, I did that, and I encourage everybody to look at Spencer Patton. Uh, my pitcher preview for this week is uh, Sean Manaya of Oakland. He's having a terrific year. Of course, the first time in several years I don't have him on any roster. 326, 117, uh, 27% K rate, just 6% walks. And listen to these starts for this week. Kansas City and Texas for the week coming up. Texas is second last in baseball in Woba versus left-handers. Kansas City is 20th overall. If you're looking for a slightly cheaper option or maybe somebody who might even be in your free agent pool in a shallow enough league, Adrian Hauser of Milwaukee has Tuesday night, I think, against the depleted Chicago Cubs, and then Sunday at the previously depleted Pittsburgh club. Chicago 20th in Woba versus right-handers. Pittsburgh is 27th. Hauser pitched against Pittsburgh earlier this week and had a truly weird result, a six and a third no-hit innings, but five walks and one earned run. He has pretty decent numbers overall, a 3.55 ERA, but don't be looking for strikeouts. He's only got 80, I think, in 48 walks, something like that, in his less than... 70 innings, I believe, or 65. I'm not sure. But anyhow, he walks too many guys and doesn't strike out enough. But when a guy's going in to uh, play the Cubs and the Pirates, you got to be interested. Yeah, and those starts are away at the more of a pitcher ballpark. So it's a good call on that. Uh, Ruben, how about you? I actually have three pitchers that I'm interested in. Usually I'm not interested in two-star pitchers, but three of them actually pique my interest. First of all is Paolo Espino from the Washington Nationals. He's got He's scheduled to have two stars this week. At the Mets, which he actually shut them out for five innings on June 28th at Citi Field. Um, and he's pitching again at Citi Field. He's got the one, and Citi Field is one of the lowest runs per game in the stadiums in the entire MLB. And the Mets are just not hitting. So he's perfect for that. His second game is against Atlanta and Drew Smiley. You know, the Atlanta lineup, you don't know what you're going to get with that. Um, both, of those, both those games are probably, and the Met game is actually against Carrasco, Carlos Carrasco. So you don't know how long he's going to go. So both of those games, if. Espino can just outlast the opposing starter. He can actually get a possible win. He's only 7% owned in CBS, so he's a guy to look for. Another guy who, if you're willing to stomach him, then it's very possible you can pick him up, and that's J.A. Happ. He was traded to the Cardinals. I'm not sure why the Cardinals even got him because they're not really in the race, but they traded for J.A. Happ. His last three starts, his ERA is 9.64. That scares people away, but he's scheduled for Pittsburgh and Kansas City both at Pittsburgh and Kansas City. So that's a guy you may want to think about going after, especially the the, the woven numbers that, that uh, Patrick just mentioned on some of those teams you against against lefties. They, they don't really hit that much. So Jay Happ, if you really want to, if you can stomach it, then he's a guy you can go after. And a guy really, really, really deep. This is really deep. Carlos Hernandez of Kansas City. He was in their bullpen until recently. He's made two starts, 
so far since he became a starter, both of them against the White Sox. He won both of them, 11 innings, 10 strikeouts, 6 hits, 1 run. That's pretty good. Now, the starts are not that great. It's against the Yankees and against the Cardinals, both at home. But so far, Carlos Fernandez, his K rate in the minors, it was between 9 and 10 for, for 9 innings. He's, he only has a 34% hard hit rate, and his fastball is 97 on average, 97.7 this year. His slider is 86. He's got a curve at 82. He's only owned in 3% of CBS League. So you want to take a dart? This is the perfect dart to use on. So I don't really love the pitchers for this week, but a couple just to talk about. Drew Smiley, 40% owned. He gets Cincinnati and at Washington. Not terrible. Uh, Atlanta can score, so if they, if he goes to five, you never know. Alec Mills, only 15% owned, so he could be available in some deeper leagues versus Milwaukee and then at Miami. That's not a bad start. And how about, I can't believe I'm saying this, Matt Harvey. He gets Detroit and then Boston, so one decent start, one not. Since July 18th, he's made four starts. He's pitched 22 innings. Can you guys guess how many earned runs he's given up in those 22 innings? Two, I think it was. Yeah, two. I was going to say two, yeah. .81 ERA since the All-Star break, .72 whip. I don't know. I mean, it could all go to hell very quickly, but... uh, you know, do you want to ride the bandwagon if you're desperate for starts? You might. So Matt Harvey, just be aware of what he's doing. All right, injury update, Ruvain. Go for it. Well, let's start with Matt Harvey. He actually left his last start with a tweaked knee against the Yankees. So just be careful. Make sure he is healthy enough to make those starts when he when you come when he comes up next. I mentioned Fernando Tatis earlier in this early episode. Uh, he's on the IL with a left shoulder inflammation. They said they're going to wait about ten days to reevaluate him. Surgery is still not off the table if he doesn't improve in those ten days. He was able to recover ten days before, so we'll see how that goes with that. Joaquin Soria, the other former. Arizona Diamondback closer was picked up by by Toronto. He's on the aisle with right middle finger inflammation. We don't know how bad it's going to be right now. So Jordan Romano and Brad Hanshu continue to close for the Blue Jays. Domingo Herman, he's on the aisle with the right rotator cuff strain. We don't know how bad it is really. I mean, we know it's a strain, but that's it. He was going to be shut down, no throwing for seven to ten days, and then be reevaluated then. So we'll see how that works out. Kevin Biggio was placed on the IL with neck and back problems. We don't know how bad it is, but the Blue Jays are hopeful that he's able to come off the IL at the earliest available on August 13th. But someone who was activated and instead was Corey Dickerson. So if he's available in your league, he's already starting to hit, so he's a guy to pick up. Another guy who's been pretty good is the guy who's been filling in for Kevin Biggio, and that's Santiago Espinal. He's not that owned in a lot of leagues, and he's been hitting for a pretty good average. Chris Paddock is on the IL with a strained left oblique. He injured it during a bullpen session. We don't know how long he's going to be out for and they don't know who's going to replace him and that's going to be it for this week um hopefully over the next couple of weeks only we'll see is players coming back because as september comes as september gets closer you're going to start to hear a lot more players get shut down for the season and hopefully it'll give you more clarity on who you can drop and who you have to pick up for yep now great uh, great update uh, Patrick, thank you so much for uh, for coming on the show. Uh, always a pleasure to have you. It's always a great show. We get into some moral and ethical ground, uh, and it's really great to ta- to hear your take as uh, you know one of the greats in the industry. I, I always uh, think that you have reasonable, um, very analytical way of approaching things, and uh, always the high moral ground. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Patrick. Oh, it was my pleasure. I'd just like to wrap up by saying don't be sleeping on Detroit's offense. They're scoring runs these days, 
And uh, if you've got a guy going into Detroit and Boston for a two-star week, I might give the give Matt Harvey a pass even if he wasn't hurt. And yeah. uh, Ruvain mentioned Jay Happ. I listened to his argument very carefully, but I have decided I shall remain hapless. All right, so there's Patrick who uh, shuts down our suggestions for the pitchers this week. Uh, but that's that's great. We we love that on the show. I mean, we want differing opinions, and you know, like like I said, I I wasn't really happy with these pitchers this week. Uh, I, I'd much rather uh, put some middle relievers, especially if you're close in ERA. Don't chance it. Just fortify your ERA. Uh, obviously, if you are uh, really down and desperate and needed, then you know those are guys to give a shot. Uh, but yeah, good point taken about Harvey and Hap though. Uh, for that. And uh, again, thank you so much, Patrick. Well, before you go, why don't you tell us uh, where we can uh, find you, where we can reach you, and uh, all things Patrick Davitt. My Twitter feed is at Patrick Davitt. It's Patrick like the Saint in Ireland, uh, D-A-V-I-T-T, all one word, all lowercase, but I don't think that matters. The uh, Baseball HQ Radio podcast drops every Friday afternoon. Uh, there's a post-trade deadline special edition that came out on Saturday earlier uh, this week so if you want to have a another set of uh, analyses of the trade deadline for fantasy purposes you might want to check into that as well the podcast is available pretty much everywhere i'm not doing a lot of writing at baseballhq.com but i will be doing some research-based writing uh, later on after the season is over so uh, if you're a baseballhq.com subscriber uh, Keep an eye peeled for that because I've got some pretty good, interesting research ideas that I'm going to be addressing. Thanks, you guys. I have to imagine that most people listening to our show have heard you on the Baseball HQ Radio. And for those who don't, uh, Baseball HQ Radio is really the gold standard for podcasting. Um, it really is. Uh, Patrick gets the best guests on uh, every single week. He goes in-depth around the league. Um, there's surprise pitchers. Uh, there's just so much in there. Um, if you haven't checked it out, it's an absolute must. Uh, Ruvain, how about you? You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out all these injury updates, how long I think they're going to be out based on my medical op- opinion, and who's going to be up next. I also have a weekly article on Rotoball that comes out every Saturday discussing who's going to be injured, who's next up, and helps you with your fab every Sunday. All right, and I'm Ariel Cohen. You can find me on Twitter at ATCNY, my work over at Fangraph, Sportsline, and Rotoballer. And, of course, you can listen to me right here on the Beat the Shift podcast each week. We're getting to the home stretch. We'll do these strategy sections as much as we can to help you get set through the end of the year. Um, and waiver wires, still, there's still time. As we said on the show, if you're in the middle of the pack, don't worry about the standings. If you The ratios, don't be daunted. You can make it up. Hope the other guys uh, just decline and stick to your guns, and you, you've got a moral and ethical obligation to do so, as we've uh, dictated on this show. All right, once again, thank you so much to Patrick Davitt for joining us in the show, and from all of us here at Beat the Shift, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at beat underscore shift underscore pod.